And we are live. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. One of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. Or you could be listening on the podcast. Uh, if you're listening live, pardon the uh, brief pause there, a little technical difficulty this morning. If you're listening to the podcast, you... Uh, I didn't say anything. I'm in studio uh, once again with uh, Dave Hostetter and Stefan Hostetter. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about some a little bit of predictable news uh, today, of course, there was a big announcement regarding the uh, uh, Morgan uh, pipeline. We'll, of course, be talking a little bit about that uh, and some other issues as well. Uh, and then I do believe, uh, Stefan, I think we're going to have Lauren on the line, too. Yeah, that? our awesome. East Coast correspondent, who now I believe is actually further west than us, uh, <laughs> will, be, will be joining us uh, in, the, in the middle of the It's more of a state of mind, really, than anything. Right, exactly. Yeah, East yeah. Coast state of mind, yeah. There you go. Uh, so as par uh, our recent tradition, uh, Dave, I believe you're going to start us off with some news. Is that correct? Yes. So you said a little bit, but uh, we're talking quite a bit here. At, <laughs> it's going to be at uh, the beginning. Seven's, yeah. Stefan's quite incensed. Uh, so well, uh, <laughs> there is good reason to be. <laughs> this, right, so I'm just this weirdly hot. Uh, June day, uh, June June 1st is the day to be incensed, I think. So uh, let's do this. All right. So con uh, construction is to resume immediately on the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain uh, expansion project as the federal government announced on Tuesday that it will purchase the pipeline for $4.5 billion. Prime Minister Trudeau tweeted, Today we have taken action to create and protect jobs in Alberta and BC and restart construction on the TMX pipeline expansion, a vital project in the national interest. This comes after Kinder Morgan announced in April that it would stop investing in the project if it could not be assured by May 31st that it would be completed, citing interprovincial conflicts between the provinces of Alberta and British Columbia. Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau stated, quote, We can't expect a private sector company to work between provinces, adding that the assets were purchased in order to make sure that federal jurisdiction could be asserted. The plan is to have the federal government take over the project for the short term in order to complete it and then sell it back to private owners once the pipeline is built. According to the government, pension funds and, and indigenous groups have already expressed interest in co-owning the pipeline. As it stands, the government has agreed to indemnify a potential buyer for costs of legal delays or activist obstruction and to underwrite costs if the project is abandoned due to a court ruling or if it cannot be completed on schedule despite commercially reasonable efforts. The government can repurchase the pipeline before it is abandoned in either case. In the meantime, the project is to proceed under the ownership of a Crown Corporation with the, de with the deal set to close in August. The government has yet to determine whether to sell the project back to the private sector in the short term or the medium term. When asked how long this would be and pressed on the issue of court challenges, Morneau reasserted that the purchase of the project creates federal primacy jurisdiction which will allow them to move forward. He said, quote, there's always going to be people who question the project, but we know it's in the national interest. In a press release, he stated, Canada is a country that respects the rule of law and gets big, important things done. The environment and the economy must go hand in hand. <clears throat> he claimed the situation puts our international reputation on the line and that they must ensure the summer construction season for the workers who are counting on it. Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr has said that the majority of Canadians support the project and that our transition to a clean growth century will not happen overnight, but the end goal is clean air, clean water, good jobs, and a better world for our kids. In terms of environmental protection and economic growth, he said, quote, Canadians want both and can have both. 
Kinder Morgan claims that the first 20 years of the pipeline will give $5.7 billion to BC, $19.4 billion to Alberta, and $21.6 billion to the rest of Canada. Critics say that the public deserves transparency on the long-term costs of the project, but the government says they may not get the full value of the deal if they release that data while the private sector actors are still bidding on the project. Cons Pro Progressive Conservative Member of Parliament Shannon Stubbs of Alberta said the announcement is about Kinder Morgan divesting from Canada and putting taxpayers on the hook. She argued that government could have asserted jurisdiction without federal ownership by bringing in legislation to stop the challenges at the provincial level. She claims the $4.5 billion is not going towards building the project, but going to multinational corporations to build pipelines in other countries. Stubbs said there is still no guarantee that the project will get built as pipeline opponents will still be fighting construction. The New Democratic Party's Member of Parliament, Jenny Kwan of British Columbia, criticized the federal government, quote, bailing out big oil, saying that the purchase breaks the Liberals' promise of not providing any more oil subsidies. She said the project did not go through a robust environmental assessment and that the Liberals have turned their backs on what they were calling a new nation-to-nation -nation relationship with Indigenous communities. She said that a green energy plan does not have to disadvantage workers and that there is nothing stopping the government from investing $4.5 billion in solar panels for First Nations communities and that $3.2 billion would ensure clean drinking water for all First Nations communities. Both Kwan and Stubbs criticized the government on its lack of transparency regarding the purchase, saying the public as shareholder has a right to know how much the pipeline will cost, calling the government's actions absurd. Federal Conservative leader Andrew Scheer says the move does not solve the legal questions and does not resolve the jurisdictional issue, saying that it sends a bad message internationally and that we have to, that we have to nationalize big projects in order to complete them. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh also says the deal solves nothing, adding that climate change leaders don't spend $4.5 billion on pipelines. Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May called the deal completely insane and that it is not at all of the same character as previous subsidies for GM and Bombardier. She called it, quote, political desperation aimed solely at trying to help Rachel Motley beat Jason Kenney in the next election, adding, very bad public policy occurs when a government gets itself painted into such a corner. In, a law, in law school, we used to say that hard cases make bad law. This situation has created a public policy solution that is worse than the problem they faced in the beginning. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley believes that legal problems will indeed be solved due to Crown immunity. Notley agrees she has an obligation to promote environmental responsibility. She stated, quote, We have put in place an emissions cap, so whether we have a pipeline or not doesn't make any difference about the amount of emissions that would come as a result of the oil sands in the absence of Trans Mountain. She called the NDP's climate plan for Alberta absolutely world-leading, pointing out that Alberta accounts for 60% of the coal emissions in Canada and that they have committed to getting rid of coal completely by 2030. She added, that Alberta, she added that Alberta is leading the continent in renewable energy investments. British Columbia Premier John Horgan says the ownership does not alter his concerns about the risk of a spill and he will continue his legal challenge. He said, quote, I think I have a better chance of progress with a Crown Corporation and a government that is responsive to people rather than a company that is only responsive to its shareholders. Horgan said the issue should have been resolved through a joint reference to the Supreme Court. Ariel Deranger, executive director of Indigenous Climate Action and a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, said in an interview with Democracy Now!, quote, We have for years spoken out against the harm that the oil industry has caused in the region. 
Yes, it has brought economic prosperity. Yes, it has brought jobs. But it's also brought with it contamination. It's also brought with it pollution. And it has also brought with it massive amounts of carbon emissions that we absolutely can't afford in a climate crisis. The rights of indigenous communities continue to be eroded and sacrificed so corporations can continue to profit. But what we're seeing now is that a government has gone from supporting fossil fuel companies that violate indigenous rights to actually becoming one themselves. Man. Well, that all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, uh, I did not expect uh, Justin Trudeau to be able to, uh, to bring together the NDP and conservatives so effectively. <laughs> Uh, that was uh, it's 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 so rare that we get a sort of bipartisan agreement. Uh, so if if Trudeau's goal was to create bipartisan agreement uh, against him, uh, he's nailing it. And the, off the top, I just wish that Trudeau had shown even an inch or a, a small percentage of the commitment to electoral reform that he has shown <laughs> to this pipeline. Like just a li- like it, the um, you. The electoral reform was in his platform, and he just basically did a survey, was like, eh, none of these options are great for me. No. Canada doesn't want it. Like, I love the idea that its international interest simultaneously gets to be no electoral reform, which, despite the fact that, you know, that that there's generally a a resounding call to to move forward in some version of electoral reform, and also definitely pro-pipeline. It's just... It's, it, it, it sort of makes a mockery of the, of, of the entire thing because, like, the only thing Trudeau could really argue here is, I said I would do it, so I have to now. But you also said you would cause electoral reform, and you haven't. So where, like, if your stance only is when powerful people with connections to oil want something, they get it, and when other things, when, when I tell you something as, the, as citizens of Canada uh, or residents of Canada... Um, you know, you don't is is what he is currently saying, and it is unbelievable. It like it's kind of interesting to watch just how universally hated this is. Uh, can, can I just? I, I'm gonna let you finish. Please. I just want to jump in just because it's relevant to what you were just saying. So uh, there was a we tweeted it. Someone tweeted it to us, and I retweeted it. Uh, an article, an spectacular. Uh, uh, actually, I borrowed that word because it's in the title of the article. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, uh, a spectacular op-ed uh, in iPolitics by Martin uh, Petriquain. Uh, I'm not hmm. sure how to say the last name. Uh, anyway, uh, today I will spare you reading the article, but the the takeaway that I pulled out of it and added to the tweet because I just loved it. And it goes to what you were saying a second ago, which was liberals talk like the NDP, but govern like Stephen Harper with a hangover, which was my favorite <laughs> sentence in that entire article. Um, and it's, it just speaks to, I think, to what you're saying. Anyway, I can see, I just want yeah. to add that. Um, and, and I also, when you look at the, the $4.5 billion number is also not, um, it's, a, it's not only is it a big number, it is also sort of only a fraction of the actual cost of what they're actually in, going to do. $4.5 million is to buy the, the current Kinder Morgan pipeline. It is not the cost of actually building the, second, the, 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 the twinning pipeline. Um, in fact, it is largely presumed that the, that'll, that the price will, will continue to go up to about $15 billion um, if they're actually able to, to actually build the pipeline, which, again, is still gravely 
unlikely. All right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you again so soon, but I was actually, when I asked Stefan quietly for a pen there during the beginning of the show, it was for this purpose. Uh-huh. I was doing some pocket math here. I did it at home and then I left my laptop at home <laughs> and I had to do it again quickly. So um, just on the math, because I think this is really interesting. So I don't claim to have enough information or even the education to properly do this type of analysis. My point is not that these numbers are solid. Hmm. Um, it, that they're the best available and, and they're available to Canadians and Justin Trudeau is going around doing a publicity tour saying that Canadians want this, which a, my comment on that is yes, Canadians do want prosperity and protection for the environment. You're not doing that. (laughs) And by prosperity, they weren't saying, and we only take prosperity in the form of oil money. Right. So that's politically untrue in the sense that he's trying to claim ownership of a true thing, but he's neither offering it nor is he correctly stating what the thing is that people want. Uh, But on the numbers, because that's the important thing. So my point here is he keeps saying, you know, we're going to, this is profitable and safe, profitable and safe, profitable and safe. It's only super ideological people who are against this because they don't understand how ridiculously proper, uh, valuable this is going to be. And by the way, it's totally safe. Okay. So these are not great numbers, but these are the numbers that are available because Justin Trudeau and his government has refused to public publish any actual numbers or math on this. So this is the that we have available. Again, I don't say these are final numbers, but this is what we can find just by looking around, doing our best guess here. Um, So the oil industry, oil and gas in Canada as a total is subsidized somewhere in the effect of $3.3 billion per year. Um, I've heard higher numbers. That's the most reliable uh, conservative number that I was able to find, uh, had the most accreditation. Um, Let's go with that. So that equals over 20 years that they're talking about over this pipeline. Uh, uh, Dave, you had the number there. Do you mind refreshing our memory? Who gets what over 20 years there? I'll buy you a second to find it. But 3.3 billion times 20 years is $66 billion. $4.5 billion for the pipeline. That's 70.5 billion. Stefan, what are the provinces supposed to get back over that same time period? Uh, first 20 years, $5.7 billion to BC, $19.4 billion to Alberta, $21.6 billion to the rest of Canada. Right. So f- roughly $45 billion. Let's give them another bone. We're going to take the best case scenario numbers. Let's get, throw them another bone and say, you're going to sell the pipeline. Let's dream up a fantasy land where you sell it for exactly what you bought it for. We'll bring that number down to $66 billion. That's still uh, $21 billion missing over 20 years. Debt at, at a loss. So again, there's probably numbers here I don't know, but this is also not accounting for the long-term costs of climate change, just the pure cost of dealing with climate change. Whether or not we build this pipeline, there will be costs. Uh, It's using every possible optimistic number. It's also using the assumption that this pipeline will operate uh, as it did 30 years ago before there was a global transition to uh, to deal with climate change and deal with renewable energy. So like every number in this equation is using the most optimistic possible, and we're still losing $20 million dollars on this deal. So there's a lot of assumptions here, but and, and I, I'm not telling you that that's the actual end result. I'm sure it's not. I know for a fact there's a lot of missing data here. My point is, this is the best Canadians can do because Justin Trudeau refuses to show the numbers. And as far as I can tell, we're actually losing $20 billion on this deal at, in the best case scenario. Like it, the idea is, to my understanding, to, to, you know, to buy it and build it and sell it again. Um, and some of the more interesting critiques of this have actually come from conservatives who are just sort of like confused um, in part because like the, the interesting description of, of it was basically the uh, the Trudeau government telegraphed that it was a very, very, very uh, interested buyer of this pipeline, which allowed Kinder Morgan to basically, you know, name their price to some extent to push to push price up. And then when they want to sell it, they will be an incredibly uh, they will want to sell it very badly as well. And so basically on both sides of this deal, they are they are in the weaker position. 
right? And so they're really relying on this basically making money in uh, like in other fashions and other ways because they're they're really not in a very good spot here if they get the thing built. And one one thing that w- that stuck out for me from some of the reporting, one of the reporting that came out of the National Observer was was an article that or it was a was a quote actually from Richard Kinder uh, who who's the chair of the U.S. parent company, Kinder Morgan. Uh, I, I presume some relation. I actually don't know. but um, uh, And he, in January of 2010, uh, basically was, was speaking as uh, that the expansion was almost certainly never going to be commercial, commercially viable. This was 2010, and this is Kinder Morgan, the company at the time, who was pushing for this, basically. And he said, quote, it would be almost impossible to replicate any of the major pipelines that we have any uh, that we have at any reasonable cost, and even getting into some of these metro- metropolitan areas would be impossible today. The ar- areas are just built up too much. This is a quote from the person who was then spent the next seven years trying to sell this, <laughs> um, and then and now we have come out as the Canadian government and it was like, you know what was great, the idea of still making this happen, and it's just sort of like. I'm I'm just true like there are obviously 17 different ways to get at this in ways that it is so epically frustrating. You know, it is it is just unbelievably annoying. Um and, and I, the uh, Lauren uh, who we'll have on in a second I think commented like is it okay if we just sob on air for an hour? Um and I legitimately considered that. <laughs> Stephen, we won't we won't read it here, but perhaps you'll just uh, summarize. Uh, I, you know, you had a very largely shared post this week to oh, that yeah. point. I don't know if you want to just sort of brief it. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the po- so it, it really just has to. Do, I, I sort of uh, a couple days ago, and I just came to a a bit of a wits a wits end, maybe is the way to describe it of of, uh-huh. of just depressing news. Um, and and I, I I just shared something on Facebook that really was just sort of like. I don't know if we make it, guys. I, like, I, I really don't. Um, you know, we, we currently, like, what's interesting is living in, in, in Toronto, you're in this sort of, you're in a bubble for sure. You're, you're in a bubble that really protects you from a lot of the, of the, wor- of, of, of the worst impacts of climate change uh, and, and a lot of the worst impacts of, uh, you know, the poor leadership we keep putting into power all around the world. But it was just sort of like, I, I had this one moment of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, a, cri- a crisis. Uh, someone, someone said an existential crisis it was a little hard, a little more than I would put at it, but but really, it came down to the point of like, right now we are in a you know we're in a city where you know we can't even figure out how to have decent transit uh, or like if you if you understand the idea of that we are twenty years behind where we should be on climate change, which is approximately if you look at some of the numbers around where we at. You know, if in nineteen I guess now if in actually probably we'll a little more than twenty years behind, but if, if in like the late nineteen nineties we were start we were where we were at now, we would be on a trajectory that would be that would probably keep us under could at least theoretically keep us below two degrees. Now I will say that also at that point we still have actually begun to decrease emissions yet so yeah. whether or not it keeps going on at this point is different is a question but we live in a place right now where we we constantly are talking about the concept of um you know uh, of of this mass action that needs to happen to 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 bring us somewhere and and yet we live in a city in which we cannot get good transit and good by or good by links or any way to replace where we're at. We live in a province that is all teetering on the edge. We'll get to this at the end of the show, but teetering on the edge of electing someone uh, in Doug Ford who is uh, who is 
out to make it worse. Uh, you know, he's, he's out to get rid of, uh, you know, to, to make it easier to drive and to get rid, to get rid of, uh, the, the carbon, the price on carbon, even though, again, it will get put back on by the federal government, uh, but probably in a worse fashion. Um, we live in a country where the, 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 le- our leader, our supposedly progressive leader is, just bought a pipeline as a way to save the oil industry, which is dying and trying to take us all with it. And in a world where reality feels like it's slipping from our fingers, you know, like, and then, and and it's just, it, it, it struck me just so much of like, Maybe we're on the maybe we're on the wrong timeline, you know. Like literally, I've I've been having this thought of like maybe we're on the maybe we're on the timeline where everything goes goes to you know goes to goes goes to, I don't know if I can say that I don't know if I can say uh, what where the devil lives in a handbasket, but uh, like this, like <laughs> I don't pretty sure I, we can. I, I, yeah, well, um, yeah. like this is the it's so hard to find right now. A, a positive and, 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 and nice spin uh, to be like, look, things are cool uh, because things aren't cool. <laughs> um, really, things are not cool right now. Well, uh, as uh, Chomsky says, it's our generation that will have to answer the question of organized life will survive on the planet. Yes. But his optimism always goes back to the past movements that have worked in certain ways. Um, I was wondering if you could parse this thing Notley said, though, for me. Yeah, before. sure. Um, she believes that uh, her Albertan emissions cap means that it does not matter if you have a pipeline or not because the amount of emissions will be the same whether or not you have Trans Mountain. Right. So there's there's two things wrong with that actually. Do you well, want to grab the first and I'll take well, the other one? Sure. Well, so <laughs> that argument is 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 interesting because it a puts an incredible amount of faith that you're not going to be elected next year. <laughs> Like oh, that's actually a third thing. Like, two other things. Like, <laughs> like, like here's a, like there's like yes, if you had a perfectly in place price uh, uh, a cap and trade program, which actually limited, which actually had a limit of of of, of tar sands expansion, and, and like right now, like you do not need a new pipeline for tar for, for the tar sands to continue. You need a new pipeline for tar sands expansion. Right. Um, and so, you know. It, Theoretically, you could have a price it, like it would just be slightly cheaper to move this if that was the case. But the numbers we're getting as to how much oil will be pumped, like the, the the value of the pipeline is being based on being used at its mass capacity for its max years. So either you're massively in, undervalued. In fact, it only makes financial sense under those circumstances. Seventy percent, if it's only seventy cent percent full for like a third of the time, even that small difference, the whole project's financials get thrown in the washer. Well, exactly. Yeah. Like the the, the issue here is that it, it, if either you're telling me that you are not going to use this pipeline to its max capacity, and therefore the numbers you're selling this thing are are way too high, and actually is a much worse deal than it is, or alternatively. You have no you intention are, of meeting those climate changes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, you're as a government of only four years, and uh, who, who has a very strong contender running against you uh, in a in a unified party, is is in my mind just so short sighted. Right. It's 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 politically equivalent to saying I'm gonna uh, if elected I will give every single man, woman, and child in Canada a Ferrari, and don't worry, we're just gonna cut cat taxes in 2075. Well, like, like, yeah, like it's, like it's, it's, it's not raise, sorry, raise tax. You yeah. know what I meant, right? <laughs> like, it's not the, the the frustrating thing I think here, and we'll go to music break because we're running over time right now. The frustrating thing is that she's not technically wrong, and that's the most frustrating thing about a lot of these things is that like 
if in in the very 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 tight small understanding of if there was a, a very effective cap and trade program in Alberta, then that again the Alberta the Alberta cap trade is good but doesn't actually cover all industries. Um, and none of this even covers the like the other last part about this is that that in no way covers downstream oil. This only covers upstream oil. Her cap and trade program does not cover burning the oil. So even so, all it's saying is all her all she has control over is how much emissions are caused by the oil sands in the production of the oil, mm-hmm. and then we ship it, and then it becomes an entirely different jurisdiction. And she can she can wash her hands and be like, "Look, I told you we have a cap and trade program." Yeah. Right. So and, the, the and, quick recap, just because we do have to go to break, the quick recap is that um, she, the the she the t- the totals are triple where they are today. So it allows emissions to triple before the cap means anything whatsoever. Um, the emissions cannot triple. So her cap uh, argument is. Is, is uh, climate change irresponsible on the face of it. Second of all, as Stefan points out, we can't, that's made on the assumption that this cap will never go away and never be adjusted by any future governments. And if it's done so, the entire thing gets screwed up. If you have a budget where you're allowed to spend a dollar a day and then and your budget only works if you spend a dollar a day for five years and then two years into it, you start spending $10 a day, your entire budget was irrelevant. So that's problem two. Um, and problem three is that, again, is that all the financial arguments that are made, which is the, hey, don't worry about that because we're getting this, all rests on the, the this that she's pointing to being a lie. The only way the pipelines are as profitable as they're claiming they'll be is if they completely is if they're actually assuming that those uh, uh, restrictions will not come into place or will not be effective or that someone else will deal with them. So those are that's the three things wrong with that sentence. Well, and let, again, and let's not forget the downstream emissions. The downstream emissions are so there's fourth. Yeah, like the, like <laughs> like it is. It is incredibly irresponsible to act as if the only emissions caused by oil extraction is in the extraction itself. Like the purpose of your doing it is to burn it later. That has to be included. And that's why the Energy East went down when a climate test was put to it, because they knew it wasn't going to pass. Because uh, downstream emissions are a are, are a completely just ignored part of this because they just want to be able to say that they have jurisdiction and they don't. Like this is really just making it cheaper for other you know for other places to burn this thing. And that is the problem. Uh, it's, and, and also not to mention it puts us like uh, oh no we're gonna have another segment on this. I'll get to the other part of Let's go to Megan uh, for our first music break. Okay, well, it's June 1st, which means it's Indigenous History Month and Pride, so we will be listening to Chris Dirksen. This is June. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Sarah Kaster, in the studio here. Before we go, we're, uh, we have one of our volunteers calling in today. We're just getting uh, her on the phone. Uh, while we're working that out, uh, I'll do a quick announcement here, which is, the, uh, as you may have heard me do last week, uh, that uh, the CIUT Spring Fundraiser is next week, uh, next Friday's show. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, you can go to the website early, or you can uh, remember that we actually record the show on Friday mornings and call in from 11 to noon here on CIUT. CIUT.FM is the website. Uh, please do uh, feel free to go there now uh, if you uh, can, uh, or you can call in next week. Uh, we will need your uh, support uh, for the station. Um, also, uh, before we get to that, um, Dave, a quick topic about the um, just the idea of like um, feedback and sort of like talking like a lot of, obviously like a lot of what we talk about uh, on the show are the financials and one of the things I was going to um, sort of comment on maybe we'll come back to later but was just the idea that I've noticed that there seems to be an extremely high um, 
reliance from people in the environment movement when you see comments on Twitter or on Facebook or when I speak to people or when I'm going to, you know, I don't go to as many due to my health as I used to, but when I'm at, a, you know, an environment meeting or something like that, often people's first reaction is to go to the, well, don't, you know, this is, a, a, and these are all true things, right? This is, you know, talk, might talk about inherent value of nature. They might talk about um, violating uh, treaties with uh, indigenous peoples. And whatnot, but what I'm always thinking, and what, and what I've often, when when I felt um, the space to do so, to stick up my hand and is say, is that like you know when we're reading through the news, like we did with this morning, everyone who is sort of for this stuff, who's potentially convertible, so not the nine thousand year old conservative that's been voting conservative since you know the day they turned two, and you know that sort of stereotype, uh, sort of quote unquote right winger. Of course, there are left wing uh, corollaries to that, but not as numerous, I would say. Mm-hmm. But it's but like there's a the squishy middle, right? Because like politician Justin Trudeau is not going to do something because I called him. Um, he's going to do something because he because a lot of people called him, aka he sees it as a political threat. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get more people, you know, obviously there's not enough political threat now, so we need to increase that. But whenever whether it's Justin Trudeau or whether it's somebody, you know, some scumbag like Ezra Levant uh, or anybody in between, uh, between you know, total hack. Um, fake wannabe journalist uh, who, you know, does stuff just for the sake of making themselves enriched and, and you know, and, and noticed uh, to people who are, you know, leading the country. All the arguments for it are always financial and the arguments against it are seemingly never financial. And I don't, I don't know if you have the arguments like a, against what are not are well, not like against, for instance, like about this morning's uh, conversation about like the pipeline. So people will say, mm-hmm. well, and it's true. Like we should, like it's not to say that those things aren't true or that they they aren't important, but they're not the things that the people who need to change their mind or need to be convinced or need to get woke a little bit about some of the information here are considering, right? Like, and so I don't understand. You're saying um, the environment requires a financial argument. Well, because all the counter arguments. So because like here's how it goes. Like so, if Dave, if I said to you. Um, uh, give me $50,000 and I'll give you a million dollars, um, next week. Mm-hmm. And, and you gave me some response. I'm sorry, bad. I'm just making it. It's a bad example. I'm just coming off the top of my head. I, I mean, isn't this fine? I didn't do well, but you said something about like, you know, but yes, but what about the puppies? What I'm hearing you say is that, sorry, again, that was a horrible example. Just forget I said it, <laughs> but like some sort of thing where like there's money involved in your response to me, instead of addressing the money and saying, actually, you know, I could make more money elsewhere. You say, but I love puppies. The implication there that people don't seem to understand is that what the person is hearing from you, the other person who you said that to mm-hmm. is saying, I don't have a financial argument and I want you to consider this other value as more important. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily less valid, but it's less it's less effective. I mean, isn't the financial... When you have a good financial argument and that's the thing the person is telling you they care about, their counterpoint is yes, but financials. And you have a good financial argument. Why don't you start with that? You mean because it costs to deal with... costs money in the future to deal with climate? Yeah, the, the yeah, exactly. Among other things that, you know, the, this sure will get $5 billion now, but where it's going to cost is $50 billion later for things. Nobody... I just yeah. I feel like I'm the only ever well, one that ever says that. And I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because the people who make the financial argument... Uh, that that we need the economy to be strong now, uh, simply are not willing to accept the future potential financial costs of climate change. And so they have to accept the dire straits of the climate crisis in order to then move to the other financial argument. Right. So, but what I'm saying is, so like in the sense of like, say in a debate, so say that just fictionally that we're talking about Doug Ford and, and uh, you know, either Wynn or, or Horwath, you know, arguing a point at a debate and, and Doug Ford says, this is costing us, you know, $5 billion a year. And the counter argument is, Doug, it's costing you $5 billion at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, it's co- it's getting us 10 in taxes. So this is actually mm-hmm. worth $5 billion. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying that you think about, but you just hate children. <laughs> like everyone... <laughs> 
everyone in that room is hearing, whether they realize it or not, you don't have a good counter argument to the argument that I made. And so you're trying to switch the conversation. Mm. And, and I, do, I just don't understand why people don't realize how that, whether true or not, makes you look like you don't have a good argument for that. And There's, you're actually helping the other person by saying, yeah, it, it is financially better to do that thing. I'm just asking you to do something against your financial self-interest rather than the truth, which is actually this person is lying to you or misinformed and here's the real information. Yeah, I think in the debates there's a problem that the conservatives have a monopoly on uh, environment, uh, economic responsibility or publicly perceived economic responsibility. Thank you for adding that. And so if and so if <laughs> If you have the NDP and and if you have Horvath and Wynn, which they do, they do make uh, financial arguments for their policies. They don't di they don't directly attack it so precisely in what you're saying, but they do uh, present that. But then they come across as not only women but also members of the left who are generally publicly perceived to not be as uh, fiscally responsible simply because they want uh, you know wonderful things for everybody and it makes them sound like fairies. Right. And it's, but it, like that response seems to play into that. Like that seems to be, to me, I read that as, yes, you're right. You guys are better with money, but that, you know, you should vote for the heart party, not the money party, which just seems mm -hmm. like, just seems like mm -hmm. bad idea because That's one true. of the things that we learned, you know, I mean, I, I claim to have known this as in, I, I thought it before and now I feel like I've been vindicated, um, that this is the, you know, exactly what we saw with Trump, which is that you can sort of promise anything. And mm -hmm. when you when your counter response is not, here's the correct answer, but I'm offended by the, your claim. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a fact. We're not talking about right and wrong. We're not talking about, you know, truths or any of that stuff. We're talking about effectiveness in politics. And, and we saw what happens, which is you just, if you just keep making claims and your person and the other person's response is not you're wrong and here's why, but I'm super offended by your claim. Mm -hmm. Nobody, no, not enough people change their mind. In fact, some people think that you're actually admitting that the other person's right. And they say to themselves, look, I may not like this person, but I'm going to vote in my self-interest. Mm -hmm. Well, it's troubling because when you, when you debate a man like Donald Trump or Doug Ford, they uh, begin with these seemingly ostensibly fiscally responsible arguments. Uh, but then once you begin to attack them in, in, in the same way or in a logical fashion, they simply get louder and more angry. And, that, and I think it's at that point that the argument switches to one of the heart, right. where you try to say, okay, now that you're angry and being a, being a dick to me, <laughs> I am no longer, like, obviously the logical argument, uh, the, the fiscally sound argument is not uh, even going to work with you. I now have to appeal to humanity. Yeah. beyond that. Is it one of the things I mentioned on the show before is that I've, I made a hobby a while ago. I don't do it so much anymore, but I went through a period where I was obsessed with watching debates. And so I've mm. literally, no exaggeration, watched hundreds of hours of very wow. smart people arguing with each other, <laughs> which is where I got a lot of my lingo and whatnot around around that sort of topic. And yeah. it, like professionals know what they're doing. And one of the things professional debaters do is they study the other person they're going to be debating and anticipate their arguments and prepare counterarguments. And I've never, ever seen anybody do that. I mean, they do to some degree, but they're like, they're, they're for... You mean politics? Yeah, in in, poli in political debate. And whether we're talking about in a debate as in a bunch of leaders on a stage, or whether we're talking about branding of campaigns, mm -hmm. there, there just seems to be such a, a, mal a, a political malpractice <laughs> mm -hmm. of not actually talking about the things as they are and trying yeah. to... Like when you when someone does a wrong thing and you try and... Uh, by you know scapegoating someone and then you try and essentially m mimic them and but just turn it on them mm -hmm. the people who already agreed with you yeah they get really worked up but the people in the middle see it as equivalence mm -hmm. well you're both doing it 
So now mm-hmm. I don't have any way to, to see the difference between the two of you. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have a larger point other than that was a serious question. I actually don't know. Maybe there's a good reason. Somebody can answer my question or, or thinks there's a reason, you know, or, the or general thinks that I'm wrong. Like, let me know. But Aaron. yeah, I think that's a good way to summarize that. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that, Dave. Uh, are we ready so, for next things? What's well, next? Yeah, so, uh, so I think we can go back to uh, another music break and then we'll bring an East Coast, 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 Coast correspondent uh, on for the last segment. Sounds uh, good. Okay. So yeah. if, you, we have, if you have any final thoughts for this segment, you got about a minute before we can. Uh, no, I, I think, I think Dave wrapped it up pretty succinctly there. I'll take a, a degradation of the public discourses is good summary. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the, uh, so we'll be back to talk about more Kinder Morgan. Uh, if you didn't get sick of it yet, guess what? There's more, uh, but this time with Lauren. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that'll be happening in just a second. Uh, but for right now, uh, what are we going to listen to, Megan? We've got uh, Tegan and Sarah. This is Goodbye, Goodbye. And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority again. Uh, once again, taking this opportunity to remind people that next week is our spring fundraiser here at CIUT. It feels like the summer fundraiser already. Jeez. Yeah. The three of us are, are sweating through our shirts here in the studio. <laughs> um, it's not a good room to be in. Um, uh, we do have Lauren on the line. Stefan, uh, uh, I'm going to let you be the handler here. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing, Lauren? Not too shabby. How about yourself? Uh, pretty well. Uh, so that's what we're going to do here is we're going to go to you first for some thoughts on Kenner Morgan. Uh, we're going to go to Dave to give us an update about the, the last leaders debate because we do have an election happening here before our next show. Uh, so we were going to briefly talk about that and then we'll add that and then we, then we can spend the last little bit either talking about Kinder Morgan or how depressed we are about Ontario or really anything we feel like. Uh, but let's start with, uh, with your sort of first, uh, first opinions on, on Kinder Morgan. Awesome. I, I feel sort of bad for dragging listeners back into this conversation after you guys just wrapped it up. But um, but here we are, and I have a big enough ego to, to think that <laughs> listeners need to hear my thoughts. So That's why we hired you, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> you fit right in. Um, I guess just like the first thing right off the bat, um, I think the best, maybe not the best thing I've read or heard just about the whole Kinder Morgan debacle in the last week was a tweet I read a few days ago, because of course I read it on Twitter, but um, somebody said that Trudeau's purchase of Kinder Morgan was like buying Blockbuster the year Netflix took off. <laughs> and I think it's such a perfect analogy because it, it's true. It's just like you you went into such depth earlier and, and you explained it really well, um, Sarah, and all the kind of like the financial aspects of it. But it's if this project were financially viable, Kinder Morgan would not have walked away from it. They wouldn't have sold it for $4.5 billion because they could have made quadruple that off of it if it were if it were financially viable so it's just like immediately we know this is a bad idea and that's just if we're looking at the financial aspects that's not if we're looking at any of the nation-to-nation relationships that Trudeau has always talked about he's so passionate about and the environmental issues we're not looking at so it's it's idiotic this entire endeavor um and then the other thing I wanted to talk about I understand I'm speaking too quickly right now so I apologize for that um (laughs) It was just yesterday the House of Commons finally passed a bill um, approving adoption of UNDRIP, so the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And numerous MPs pointed out, well, new MPs and, and different political pundits pointed out that, that these are sort of two concepts that can't be married. You can't purchase a pipeline that has all kinds of Indigenous descent and then turn around and also approve UNDRIP. 
because UNDRIP, like one of the main points in it is that um, it talks about free prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples for any projects that might go through their land. And we lack that for this project. So for Liberal MPs to throw their weight behind UNDRIP and then turn around and be totally cool with their leader purchasing this pipeline, again, just doesn't make sense. And and the two aren't going to be able to sort of continue in harmony. One of them is going to have to give at some point. Um, that being said, the bill supporting UNDRIP hasn't completely passed Senate and stuff like that, so it's still it's still a bit contentious, but, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, like, and I think that's an, what's what's was briefly mentioned in Dave's notes, but it was worth repeating, is that this does not solve the question of, you know, if Trudeau's government w- is found to have already approved the pipeline before they really weren't finished engaging in conversations uh, with different indigenous groups, as became quite clear through some of Mike D'Souza's reporting, that p- would, would theoretically, could theoretically push this back into a National Energy Board review. Mm-hmm. If if like there's a that is theoretically possible, and if that happens, how on earth do you take a to take it seriously that the National Energy Board could in any or, or that a federal government could in any way have in a have a um any reasonable type of converse, uh, of real feedback when they now own the pipeline? You know, this is like this is now like it, it now almost brings into question the entire charade uh, of of trying to get a pipeline approved because it's it's you know how you're now regulator and also uh, owner of the pipeline. Like, it, no, that's it, a, yeah, that's exactly right. We can't trust not, not that we could ever completely trust the regulatory oversight, but like that that is completely out the window now. Like, there's not even the facade of that anymore. Um, yeah, and, and and yet we there it remains a possibility that this will get sent back to the NAB. And what at that point, how does Trudeau pretend that they are actually having a conversation? Like it just, I just, I fundamentally don't understand. Uh, and that, like, I actually don't understand. <laughs> like that, that is not a that is not like I, it is both a criticism, but also a, a confusion point for me of of what would uh, of how you'd be able to pretend or claim that you are taking the indigenous feedback effectively and, or in any way if you own the pipeline. No, exactly. Well, and if it goes back to the NEB, and this is just me sort of thinking off the top of my head, none of this is confirmed, but if Energy East was going to be canned because theoretically it was going to have to go through, like it, like downstream emissions were going to be taken into account mm-hmm. um, for Energy East, how can Kinder Morgan go back to an NEB approval process or regulatory process and not also have to go through that same rigorous downstream yeah. calculation? Like, it, 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 yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense. And it's really, really hard to wrap your brain around. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and and you know, and, and there remains this question of now we're on the hook for billions of dollars uh, more when you know the oil economy collapses, and you know, thanks Trudeau for setting us up to to really reap the the the, the dangers of of being invested in, in something that is clearly slowly you know decreasing in value. Um, but mm-hmm. I do want to at least have uh, have a, the ability to talk briefly about the debate. So, Dave, can you just sort of give the uh, the overview of the last uh, Ontario election debate? Yes, uh, just the environmental aspect of it, of course. Right. So, during Sunday's Ontario provincial leaders debate, an audience member asked progressive progressive conservative leader Doug Ford a question about climate change. The question was, "Mr. Ford, you are totally against the carbon tax, and you do not support wind power or other green initiatives. So, here's my question: Do you believe in global warming, and if so, what concrete de- proposals do you have to tackle this issue?" 
In response, Ford said that he believes in man-made global warming, but he doesn't believe in a carbon tax or cap-and-trade system, <clears throat> calling these tools artificial and stating more than once that such measures do absolutely nothing to help the environment. Ford claimed the Liberals' cap-and-trade system drives up the price of every single product, sends off millions of dollars to California, and makes us uncompetitive. Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne defended the system, saying it was desired by the business community, reduces carbon emissions by making the polluters pay, and that the money goes back to those businesses to invest in green technology as well as to people to retrofit their homes. Horvath said the party supported the, her party supported the legislation, but the Liberals should have built in what she called a fairness measure and taken 25% of the revenues to help low-income Ontarians in trade-exposed industries, and that the whole process should be more transparent. In open debate, Doug Ford stated that the cap-and-trade system takes $466 million from Ontario and gives it to California, saying the money should stay here in order to invest in people and equipment. Horvath said we need to build in transparency in order to measure the effectiveness and shifted topics to clean water sources. And Wynne responded that these aspects are already a part of the cap-and-trade plan, saying they have put millions of dollars from cap-and-trade revenues into social housing retrofits and that every dollar can be accounted for. And then she shifted topics to the broadening of the green belt. Wynne said, quote, the flooding and the fires that are happening across the world have to be dealt with. Ford said, quote, we're losing jobs with the Green Energy Act. We should be keeping the money here. And uh, verbatim, with the carbon tax, it's the single worst tax ever on anything on everyone. Thanks. Uh, good news, uh, Ford. It's not a tax. Uh, so, um, like... Man, uh, and this, and literally, and this is this it was is the plan that was chosen instead of a tax. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There were two options. We chose not tax. Um, but but what's fascinating about it, like this debate is a sort of example of, of what makes Notley's comments about the cap and trade uh, being and Kinder Morgan being cool uh, ridiculous, right? Is that like in that that this can happen and will happen um, next year in 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 Alberta, and so the idea that that this is not that this is not the world that we live in is somehow uh, like completely ridiculous to me. Uh, but Lawrence, since we have you on the line, I want to get your sort of uh, your sort of thoughts on on the leader debate or really just the entire election generally. Yeah, um, I think sort of the first thing I want to do is 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 like upfront apologize because for the last couple of weeks it's been weighing on me a passing comment I made on air um, a couple of Fridays ago when I said that it was a done deal that Ford was going to win the election because it's become extremely clear that that's not the case. And I also really hope I didn't discourage any listeners by saying that. So, so first up, apologies to anybody who might remember me saying that, um, cause I was wrong. Um, and I guess I don't have too much to comment, but sort of just, just to plead with anybody listening who up until this point has maybe avoided talking about the election with their friends or family because they think that politics can't be part of polite conversation. The conversation might not be entirely pleasant, but it's it's your job and it's your duty as somebody who's part of a democratic system to engage with these issues as, as often as possible and as often as you're as you're able to, as, as often as you're comfortable to. And and also to, to get out on the street. There are so many different campaigns, um, like whether or not you're affiliated with a specific party or just some other sort of nonprofit organization like Lead Now or whatever. But there's so many different opportunities to get involved in progressive politics. And this next week is so integral to making sure that Doug Ford doesn't get in and that the PCs don't win this election. So, so whether you want a phone bank or you're like super keen to go knock on doors, in-person contact with somebody is so integral to getting somebody out to the polls. 
And statistics show that when when more people come out to the polls, when we can raise the, the, the percentage of voter engagement, progressives win more often. So if, if in any way you're thinking, oh, hey, I should maybe go canvas with my candidate or, yeah, jump on a phone bank or whatever, like, please do those things. Because action like that really, 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 really has such a strong effect, especially in an election like this that's looking like it's going to be so tight. Yeah, so that's sort of my only comment to listeners right now. It's like, please get involved. Can I make? I'd like to make an embarrassing admission yeah. uh, here live on the radio. I actually did not. This is really. I'm actually really embarrassed about this, but I'll admit it anyway. I actually never voted until uh, the <sighs> the original Ford mayoral race, ah. and I felt so, and I genuinely felt so earth shatteringly guilty. Um, since then, I've voted every opportunity I could since then. True story. Yeah. I, I really hadn't. Well, and, and, and I think like the, the other thing to note here and the most perhaps the most frustrating thing to note here is that the there's a good possibility that the NDP will actually win the popular vote and still lose to a majority PC government. That is the, yeah. that is the that is currently the projections that are expected by CBC. Uh, and, and they're sort of aggregate of polls. Uh, that is it's one of those things which is just um like at this point, it, at this point, the NDP are up by about 0.7 percent. So you know, very, very close. But ha- but they still think the PCs have an 82 percent chance of winning because of how votes are being uh, are being spread across the country. And so, to echo Lauren's point, not only is it incredibly important that you vote, but uh, and that you go out in the next week to to try to get other people to vote, but also getting this, the more young people who get to. Uh, who who go out and 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 can bring your friends? You know, like I, I remember the um, there was a video during uh, during the, the the American election when when Chance the Rapper brought ten thousand people to go vote with him mm. uh, in Chicago. He just like met a huge number of people and they all walked to a uh, to a voting booth together. Uh, and it was sort of an interesting way of using your of of using your celebrity to bring. Um, to bring uh, you know people, youth out to vote. Get Drizzy on the line. Yeah, exactly. Like, who can like? Although you know, guy goes from Forest Hill. He's fifty fifty on a conservative. <laughs> um, but like, but I, I do think there is a. But I think it, like it's unbelievably important that that young people vote, especially uh, given given the nature of this election, um, and in the nature of sort of where we're at right now with all the different things. You know, yeah. like if you it, like as much as we want to say. You know that that things are bad right now, um, or or could be bad. We're like in a scary spot, but there's there are, there are, there are hope. There's pieces of hope. You know, um, I find it. I find it. I always find that in the just to comment specifically on the debate topics directly. Uh, that so that David sort of mentioned the whenever anyone says something about their need, they will increase transparency in government. I feel like that's basically just the blanket way to criticize government generally. Like there's just it. It really has become this thing where it's like. I will just, it's not transparent enough is, is similar to sort of, I will find efficiencies. It says and the that, leader of all transparency, Doug Ford. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the things where it's just like, I will make it more transparent is always one of the things where it's like, okay. Um, but, but how, and then you get into government, you're like, Oh, I see why this is difficult. <laughs> um, but like we can, we can still do this, everyone. <laughs> like, it's not looking great, but we can still do this. And whether you're, if you're not inside Ontario, either way, this uh, uh, this election turns out it will be a lesson for you. Yeah. Either in the power of getting out to vote or in the power of not getting out to vote. Yeah. It is your fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so we've got five minutes left. Dave, we actually do have one more story uh, or, or a couple more stories. Uh, but before I go to anything else, Lauren, do you have anything else on Cater Morgan or uh, or or the Ontario election before we go on to, on to a very short story about a, a flood? 
nothing beyond just begging people to get involved. Um, so right. first with the election, like I said, and then also this upcoming Monday, June the 4th, um, Lead Now, Greenpeace, Council of Canadians, and a couple other groups are organizing different, um, like, small actions at MPs' offices across the country, and there are, like, dozens of them set up so far. So if you're angry about Kinder Morgan like the rest of us, um, like I'm sure you are, listeners, go to leadnow.com, figure out where an action's happening in your neighborhood or in your city, and and get out there and talk to your MPs because that's the only way that this pipeline's going to be stopped. So, yeah. Amazing. Uh, so, Dave, uh, next story. Oh, yes. Yeah. So a, a t- two once-in-a-thousand-year floods have hit Ellicott City, Maryland in the past two years. Uh, I don't know what the factor that is, uh, but uh, <laughs> climate scientists have long linked such floods to climate change. And as Ellicott City is recovering from the recent flooding, two journalists have died recovering a massive storm hitting the coast of North Carolina. Yeah, man. Like, so, th- so what's interesting about these thousand-year floods, to sort of explain how that works, they basically... Is what. Th- the way these sort of things get determined is uh, by strength and how much they've happened in previous times. And so it's a way for us to understand the... Uh, it's like magnitude. Yeah. But for floods. Yeah. It's magnitude and also just sort of like, you know, if, if a flood is this bad, it should only happen once every thousand years. And historically, over the past, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, that's how commonly it's happened. Um, and so and so really what it, what this is another example of is is the ever-increasing and speeding up of, of, of these more disaster-type exercises. Like, whether or not it's theoretically possible that outside of a climate changed world, you could have two once in a thousand year floods on back to back days or back to back years is um, it, it like it's possible, but it's very minute. <laughs> like the percentage chances are just overwhelmingly minute. Um, and, and it's sort of po- is yet another reminder of the, you know, the urgency and the, and the difficulty that we sort of face uh, within, you know, the conversations we should be having now are about how, are, are not actually are not how to reduce emissions. We should be at a place now where emissions are already steadily going down, and like in the in the theoretical better universe that we live in, uh, like in the world, you know, if, if if we are now in one of the darker timelines after Trump got got elected, and or, or even before that, to be honest, when we stopped doing anything about climate change or didn't do anything about climate change in the nineties, in the in the later timeline, what what occurred was in the early in late nineteen nineties, we actually got on on board. We had a relatively good plan to actually keep us below two degrees warming. And right now the conversation was, okay, how do we make our countries in places more resilient to withstand climate change during the time that we are now, which will be exceeded warming? Because we'd still at that point be locked into one, one, two degree warming or a little before under two. Um, and so in even that world, we'd be experiencing the things we're experiencing now, you know, the increased floods, the increased fire and everything like that. But we, we can't even get past the first conversation of stop hitting yourselves to treat our wounds. Like this is where we're at right now. Like, you know, we are, we are literally, uh, just still making things worse and we can't even figure out a good plan to stop making things worse before we even begin to start treating the things that we're, the actual, the problem we actually face. Stefan, the, the problem there with your hypothetical is that the, this hypothetical economy is entirely based on the sale of, uh, cold packs. Right. <laughs> and so ceasing to punch oneself in the face would collapse the economy. Well, <laughs> it's jobs, you know, someone's got to sell the cold packs. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take a little radiation if I can get a good job. That's an old <laughs> reference to George Crown. Never mind that. I can't tell the rest of the joke. It can't be done on video. <laughs> uh, I think we're, we're more or less at time there. Uh, wrap up uh, Wrap up thoughts? Yeah, it's 1158. Uh, Lauren, any last thoughts on on, uh, on on whether or not we should be letting, letting ourselves keep getting flooded? 
yeah, like I'm looking forward to one day calling into this podcast and not talking about something that just like onsets crippling depression. So, yes, like, exactly. Yeah, that, for that one day, <laughs> we, we will have in, in, we'll either have to do a, a an episode that is literally like in the, we should start just doing one episode a year that is in the world we should be in, and that we just have make up news stories. Uh, you know, actually become fake news. But uh, <laughs> Green Majority Twenty One Forty Eight broadcasting live from a, a bundle of sticks uh, floating <laughs> on the ocean. <laughs> Good news. We saw a tree today. Good news. <laughs> Temperatures dropped below 58 degrees. Enjoy the cool weather. Uh, it is now actually time for the readout, so go for it. All right. That's all the time we have for it. Do not forget that next week is our CIT Spring Fundraiser. Other than that, please uh, check out the website where you can find links to all the stories we do and more links to who we are. And you can email us as long as you are actually uh, polite and have a point to your email. I will respond to it. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and uh, take care.